You know, there's a bit towards the beginning of the episode where they mention how they were in the Do- Gamma Quadrant for four days without Dominion sighting. Now, we, we, I, you guys, have all sort of spoken in a, you know, how do I phrase this? <laughs> We've all kind of excused the lack of Dominion interaction, because it makes sense. Remember, their whole th- shtick right now is they're trying to get the Klingons and the Federation to tear each other apart as much as possible before they actually, you know, move in themselves militarily. Point in fact, I actually found myself thinking it wouldn't surprise me at all to learn that there's actually a Dominion agent, a changeling, in other words, on the Defiant, basically at all times. Not doing anything, not sabotaging anything, just keeping an eye out, you know. But of course, I do still find it funny every time they mention that. It's like, yeah, I get it. You'd think someone in character would start to be a little bit suspicious at the lack of Dominion activity. But then again, this is the Federation, and given what they just nearly went through with Homefront and what they're currently going through with the Klingons, maybe they're just like, ah, no, 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 the Dominion wouldn't do anything. Wishful thinking, you know. I don't know. So, um, we get to the episode proper. There's this, there's this nice little camera bit. I know this is a weird thing to point out, but I remember seeing it and thinking, huh, that feels like a LeVar Burton move. And I looked it up, and sure enough, he was actually the director of this episode. It's a way to do a walk-in shot while doing a reveal shot basically at the same time. Camera starts on Lita. She grabs her tray of latinum. It moves over. She drops one of the pieces. The camera swivels down to take in the piece. Now, we see the beginnings of Bashir and O'Brien walking in, but for the most part, it's just in the corner of the camera. So she kneels down, picks it up, and then we pull up doing the reveal shot of Bashir and O'Brien. Little stuff like that. It's good stuff. I like little moments like that. And, of course... It's one of the reasons I like Burton as, an, uh, as a director, excuse me. So, I admit I don't really like the beginning of this episode because it paints Quark in a more callous light than I personally think that he is. Like, I, I don't mistake me. Quark obviously is a selfish person, a greedy person who cares about money and business and all that fun stuff. But being to the point of allowing his brother to be in severe medical condition... To the point where he almost died, actually, just because he refused to give him 30 minutes to go to the med bay, which is free, by the way. I don't know. I don't quite believe that. But then again, Cork does seem to be in a particularly bad mood. And I want you to keep that in mind, because I actually think it's relevant. Just just be, keep that in the back of your mind. So, you know, things move forward, and we, find, and we learn about unions. I, th- I actually put a note here in my notes to basically talk about unions, but... Having thought about it a bit, I think I'm not going to. I could speak about unions as a concept, but really, that's the point, isn't it? Unions are a concept. They're not good, and they're not bad. It's like a hammer. You can do a lot of things with a hammer. Some good, some bad, and some neutral. It's a tool. What matters is how you use the tool. So I I think I'm just going to skip the whole unions discussion and just move on. So... There's this great little bit. Max Grodenchuk basically carries the episode. It's nice to see basically a ROM episode. Uh, We'll be seeing a few more DS9 things like this in the future. And there's this great bit towards the beginning where he says, you know, Ferengis don't want to uh, uh, stop the exploitation. They want to become the exploiters. And, you know, maybe it's just me. And maybe it's just because the inferences of the character. And maybe it's the quality of the actor. I don't know. But I get the impression that he's basically just reciting. Or that he's not really identifying himself as a Ferengi. One of the two. Because he says that, but he doesn't say that like, oh no, I want to be the one on top. He doesn't say it like that. Instead he says, well, that's not what Ferengi do. He doesn't say we, he doesn't say I. 
And he, he says it like he's repeating something that's been recited to him. And given what we learn later in this very episode about Cork trying to raise him to be a proper Ferengi, well, it probably is an actual recitation, isn't it? So, we get to the part where there's one part of this episode that actually bothers me. So they went out of their way to put Grodenchuk and Masterson, Chase Masterson, together several times just to see if they had any natural chemistry. And they do. The two actors work great together. But for some reason, the first time they put them together is what I believe to be the only reference to masturbation in all of Star Trek. At least the first. I could be wrong about that. Where he admits that he has been umoxing himself too much. And she says, oh, I'm sorry. And she, he says, sorry enough to do anything about it? And then just leans his ear towards her. There are so many levels of wrong with that scene. I, I feel like let's just move on from that. Just, no thank you. Like, <laughs> I'm sure she's a very attractive woman and a very nice person. As I've spoken before, Chase Masterton is apparently pretty awesome off camera. But really? Anyways, so then Court comes over and says, pay cut or layoffs. Now, what's interesting about this is if Quark wasn't a Ferengi, this would be perfectly understandable and acceptable. I know that sounds strange, but what I mean by that is he is a Ferengi. As is pointed out multiple times in this episode, Quark has multiple ways to still ensure profit margins while going ahead and still you know, maneuvering through bad times. Any decent businessman will take means and measures to ensure that when they have a dry spell, they still can endure in the business to get past it, to get back to the point where they're profitable again. That's one of the most basic lessons of business management. Now, granted, he's a Ferengi, and Ferengi are stupid, as I've said before. I, I feel like I've already compared the Ferengi to stupid Sith, and the idea of the whole, you know, we want to be the exploiters rather than the exploitees thing, and the the dog-eat-dog constant cycle of of stupid that that would generate certainly sounds like stupid Sith to me, but I digress. Point being that it's it's almost a shame that Quark is such a Ferengi because I like the inherent dilemma of the idea that Quark really does have a choice here. He can fire some of them, or he can cut all of their pay. And so he chooses to cut all their pay. This then introduces an interesting dilemma, because not all of the employees are going to equally agree with this idea. Some of them will be like, screw it, just fire them. I, I don't want to lose the pay cut. And of course, again, if this was true, if this is a legitimate problem, then this would cause issues. Because that money doesn't exist, right? You know, if you're doing less business, you know, basic math, right? But no, that's not the way that goes with it. Then there's this little bit. <laughs> there's this little bit where Worf is really pissed at the violation of someone trying to steal from his stuff. Now I don't blame him if someone tried to steal some of my stuff. Um, I would have to spend legitimate effort to not beat the ever living snot out of that person. Because that's just. No! <laughs> I mean, I only have two types, three types of things in my life stuff I need, you know, like my bed and my chair and stuff like that. Stuff that is very significantly important to me, like most of my stuff over here, you know, my pictures of family and friends, uh, stuffed animals, that kind of thing. And stuff I need for my job, like the computer I'm talking to right now. Any of this stuff being taken from my life would be a significant damaging act, aspect. It would be like, Ugh! and I could probably replace eh, about a third of the things I just listed. The rest of it, no. So yeah, I'm completely with Worf. 
And the best part, of course, is Odo is somewhat, you know, just, ah, look, you just kind of have to get used to this. And Worf's like, what? <laughs> this is not the kind of thing I had to deal with on the Enterprise. Then Odo points out two episodes, A Matter of Time and Rascals, both of which were, well, gross negligence when it comes to the security of the Enterprise. Funny episodes to point out, too. An episode I really like, A Matter of Time, and an episode I absolutely despise. I haven't gotten to it yet, but Rascals might actually be a lamentation. I don't know. We'll see when we get there. But anyways, first of all, nice continuity. But second of all, I point it out because Odo isn't being completely cruel or unkind here. He is just making a point. Even on the flagship of the Federation, security issues are a problem. This is a regular trade port. What the hell do you want from me? Like, I'm going to do my best, but Jesus, dude. Anyways, just, again, we're building up to something. So then we find out that the Ferengi have an automatic aversion to unions. No real-life political jokes, please. Can we just leave those at the door today? <laughs> so... The Ferengi have a direct... It's, it's like, illegal to, to unionize. It is, and it's not just against tradition. Blunt, Brunt actually threatens them later with murder if they were actually to unionize, if this was actually on Ferenginar. And given what he has his Nausicans do to Quark, I think that's at least partially... like In other words, he's not just blowing smoke. Because those Nausicans go to town on Quark, and, well... To be completely honest, he might have actually died had Odo not invo gotten involved as quickly as he did. That leads me to an interesting thought. Why are unions so illegal as to carry the death penalty on Ferenginar? Now, I know you're going to say the obvious answer, but no, I mean, actually think about that concept for a second. Think about the idea of what a union really is. Because, obviously, we think of unions as how they are used, but what a union really is is simply an aggregate of like-minded individuals who happen to be sharing the same profession or industry who have decided to use their collective employee buying power, which is a concept I don't even want to get into right now, in order to try and leverage something for themselves. Right? And that, I think, is the real crux of the issue. This is just my speculation, of course, but having studied... I'm sorry, I just realized I was about to say the sentence, having studied Ferengi culture. That's a weird sentence to say, isn't it? I'm not ashamed of it. I mean, I'm a geek. It's just funny to say something like that. Having studied Ferengi culture, I feel safe in saying that I think it's more the idea of Ferengi uniting as an aggregate and this unified group making changes to the, ag to the overall culture. I think that's what they're really against. I imagine most things like guilds or like cartels or like unions would also be similarly disallowed for the same reasons. Because all of that is the kind of thing that will totally destabilize the dog-eat-dog, free-for-all melee mess that the Ferengi society really is. You get one group who's decided to use, again, their collective employee buying power in order to try and move or shake some part of the market, what you're going to have is a precedent, especially because there's only two things that can happen. They fail, in which case, well, that buying power has now woofed away, right? They capitulate, in which case nothing changes. Or they win, in which case now other groups say, oh, that worked, maybe I could try that. And two out of three of those are something that would be considered bad for, again, the current status of the Ferengi Alliance. So, food for thought. But several times, Ferengi literally show hesitance to even saying the word union. 
Which again, given what I just mentioned, makes a degree of sense. There's this bit where Quark is trying to use holographic waiters. I wonder how much money he lost doing that. <laughs> in fact, actually, as weird as this may sound, I kind of wonder why he just didn't go that way in general. I suppose you could argue that there are detriments to that, and that wouldn't be in favor of Quark's overall business approach, you know, the people person. But at the same time, if you think about it, just having, you know, holographic waiters waiting tables isn't actually a terrible idea. You would just need the proper... Uh, Oh, God, I can't think of what they're called. Listen, the things that project holograms set up throughout the bar and just make them base-level ones that, you know, hey, I'm here, hey, I'm here. Of course, the catch is you'd need an actually advanced hologram in order to do that, not like this cheap old Walmart knockoff brand that he bought or Kmart brand that he bought. Anyways, so then there's this nice little bit where O'Brien and Bashir are playing Enter versus Pass, trying to guess which people will enter the bar in which people will decide not to. Then Worf enters the bar. What follows is actually probably my favorite little scene in this episode. It's, it's not a particularly powerful dramatic scene. It's just very well executed. They're like, oh my god, Worf went in there. That's, that's, not, that's so strange. Oh, we'll have a word with him. So O'Brien walks off. And then it cuts to the three of them in a holding cell being read the riot act, read the riot act by, by Cisco. I love that little sequence of events, especially since as we learn bit by bit more of what happened, we learn it wasn't really a brawl. Not really. Like, the implication is there. But really what happened is it was an argument that got heated, led to some shoving, and then a toss over a table, and that was basically the end of it. It wasn't a big deal. But as Worf points out later, it's not the kind of thing Starfleet officers would do to each other. Especially friends. Let's not forget that Worf and O'Brien are friends. And let's be frank, O'Brien is the closest person to an actual connecting point that Worf has on this station. Although Dax is swiftly growing into that slot as well. I point that out because this, I think, is an interesting narrative connective point between the A-plot and the B-plot. Other than this one incident, the A-plot and the B-plot have nothing to do with each other. It's just Worf being in a bad mood, wanting to get the hell off of Deep Space Nine, and finally deciding to move on to the Defiant. In fact, as a quick aside, I think her gift of her, the Klingon operas to him was actually really thoughtful. I tend to enjoy thoughtful gifts more than expensive gifts. And when I say thoughtful, to be more clear, I mean a decent amount of thought was put into making this gift the best possible gift for you, the specific individual that's receiving it. And that's what she did. So it's a nice little bit, and it's a nice little thing, and I, I completely understand and sympathize with Worf, as I said, but... Worf was in a bad mood. Now, I point this out because it's the kind of thing, as a writer and as a dissector of fiction, so both sides of the line, it's a very narrow path to walk to understand that sometimes characters act out of character because of unique circumstances versus a character acting out of character because a writer didn't understand the character or was just screwing up the writing, you know, an example of bad writing. Deciding that line is a constant hassle, and it's something that has caused uh, roughly trillions of arguments amongst fans of all of fiction for the last you know, 100 years or so. So, I point this out because, in my opinion, what we see in this episode is that Worf did something out of character. He actually got into the closest thing that he could allow himself to be of a brawl with O'Brien, his friend, and Bashir, his fellow officer. Now... That's almost unconsciousable for someone like Worf. He would have to basically lose control to do that. Unless he was in a particularly bad mood, already sufficiently ornery, and pushed 
in just the right way. Something that just hit that button. Which brings me to Cork back at the beginning of the episode. A Cork who was in a particularly bad mood because this whole situation was, was destroying his profit margins, which, as we know, is significantly important to Cork, just like Worf's privacy is important to him. And then Cork is in a sufficiently bad mood to just be dismissive about his brother, who he does, as we've established multiple times, actually care about. You see where I'm going with this? I'm not trying to apologize for the episode. It's just a thought I had as I was going through it. And I, I find the parallel between the two threads interesting enough to at least bring up. As ever, you know, I'm not even sure I believe it myself, but it's an interesting thought. And I'd love to hear what you guys think about this connecting thread. So, there's this really great scene where Quark, you know, goes to uh, Cisco, And Cisco's like, alright, so this strike thing's got to end. And... <laughs> I have a quick thing. They mentioned that the Federation is basically the, the landlord. Wouldn't it be Bajor? This is not a Federation station. This is a Bajoran station that the Federation is helping to manage. I suppose that's a niggling detail, but either way, apparently they do not charge them rent. They do, uh, that is to say, that they do not charge Quark rent. They do not charge Quark for the electricity and energy the, that he uses. And they don't charge him for the repairs and supplies. That's a pretty damn sweet deal. Anybody who knows anything about real-life finances know that rent is one of the overwhelmingly largest utility bills that any given individual will pay on a day-to-day -day basis. Like, if I was to sit down and figure out all of my expenses in my life, rent would be like this, and everything else combined would be like this, like barely even equaling up the same size. You know, that's how much rent is. So you'd think Cork would be pretty happy about that. Then, of course, Cisco sits down and says, oh, let's see, five years, rent there, plus the energy. All right, do you know what that totals up to? And what I love is the way they do the scene, because both Cisco and, and Quark have, like, this deadpan tone. Do you know how much that adds up to? That's a lot of latinum. <laughs> well, uh, I'll talk with my brother. And he says, I'm glad we understand each other. <laughs> it's, it's just this great scene. Especially since what's funny is the deadly seriousness of the threat is interesting. I mean, you could threaten a Ferengi with physical harm if you want to. But you, you actually start attacking their pocketbook, and they're going to pay a lot more attention. And five years' backlog of rent? Just rent. Yeah. Anywho. <clears throat> so, Brunt comes back. It is nice to see Brunt, as usual. But what I find most interesting about Brunt is... His approach is very a mafia-esque, which, of course, it has to be in an episode about unions. But I mention this because his approach is very interesting. We're going to confiscate all of your, your assets. Um, we're going to uh, fine your family. We're going to revoke your trade, your trade license or whatever, right? That's all the things they're going to do if you don't fall into line immediately. Now, what I find interesting about that is that's basically walking up and saying, okay, you've been doing this because you want something. Well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to not give you anything, but I will not hurt you if you stop now. That is a very mafia-style approach to things. I'm not giving you a dime, but I will decide to go ahead and forgive this offense if you decide to bow out right now. Otherwise, well... Pain's going to happen. It's a form of negative reinforcement rather than positive reinforcement. I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing, although I personally think it's a bad thing. But it's interesting the way that Brunt approaches that. It's just very blunt. <laughs> 
Then there's this great bit where Ram doesn't capitulate. And the guy's like, no, but they're going to confiscate our assets. And Ram actually has a brain and says, if you, if any of your assets, if any of your accounts were worth a damn, you wouldn't be here working here. Very logical and very true. In other words, this may cause significant damage to, well, actually, basically, it doesn't cause significant damage. It just causes damage. And in exchange for that damage, you gain nothing. Or at least, I'm sorry, I'm saying this wrong. In exchange for the absence of the damage, you gain nothing. In exchange for the damage, you gain the possibility of actually being able to be paid more and get better working conditions, right? Anywho. I also like the guy who just stays on his knees, like, the whole time. I feel bad for that actor. Being on your knees for a long time kind of hurts, you know? Especially if you don't have padding or anything. So he's just down there like, "Eh." (laughs) So, Quark, there's this great scene where Quark has a private uh, discussion. It's like, hey. And, And Rom's like, what? And they talk to each other, and Quark says, I tough, I was tough on you. I, I was harsh on you to make you a better Ferengi. Call me a weirdo, but I believe Quark. I believe, at least partially. I also believe Rom, who says that he was just trying to make Quark, you know, Quark was just trying to make himself feel better, and he was trying to push Rom down. But the problem is, Rom is not actually stupid. Rom is very smart. It's just his intellect is in a completely different field. He doesn't have the lobes, to put it into such terminology. Whereas Quark, who believes that he should have the lobes, that all good Ferengi should be financial Ferengi, was trying to push him to be more of a Ferengi. This also leads to what I was talking about earlier, about the whole, we, don't want, we want to be the exploiters kind of a thing. So, I'm curious what you guys think, in one direction or another of that. By the way, quick aside, there's this bit where the uh, Nausicans are playing darts with each other. Apparently, I saw this in the DS9 Companion book, uh, apparently, there actually were two professional dart players they brought in to play these two Nausicans just to play darts against whatever they had under their outfits and their chests. I just, I just think that's funny. So then Brunt decides to have Cork beaten half to death. Now, this is actually really horrible, and I can't. I, I am astonished the episode doesn't spend more time on this. speaking as someone who has experienced real-life physical violence and knows just how horrible and disgusting and dark and ugly real-life violence is, I'm astonished that they allowed this to happen. Basically, two Nausicaans just beat the tar out of Quark. Not in a fun, cartoony way. In a broken ribs and shattered eye socket kind of a way. Thank goodness, again, that Bashir is a great doctor and that that medical care is free. Because, holy crap! That is not an insignificant thing to be done to him. What I find most interesting is that at this moment, this is something I've noticed that's regular to Quark's character. He maintains a facade until something pushes him past that. You know, something that that is sufficiently serious or sufficiently damaging or sufficiently terrifying, and the facade just vanishes. Quark has no facade when he's there on the operating table, having barely survived this attack as he's talking to Rom. And I'm, I find that interesting because Rom seems to act like he still has a facade, but Quark is just angry more than anything else. They did this to me. They damaged me. Of course, I'm terrified of the FCA. Look what they did to me. This is a no-win situation. If I press charges and get rid of these three, all they'll do is send someone else, and that someone will start to kill him. This is a no-win situation. And he, he just tries to lay that out for Rom. And Rom refuses to budge. What I find most interesting is that the solution is actually somewhat obvious in its overtness. 
This is actually something that's also happened in real life when it comes to unions, that a union would publicly say, ah, oh, okay, the company wins, and then the company would quietly actually agree to all their demands, just not publicly and openly. That has been uh, a thing uh, in European finances as well. I'm talking back in like the 1870s, by the way. Nothing, nothing modern. We try to avoid modern stuff on this show. <laughs> but it's, it's kind of an obvious solution in, the in hindsight, but it's still a good solution. All he has to do is set aside a little bit extra money for another account to pay them more and to offer them time off and to offer them medical leave. And then he gets all of them back. He wins, so the FCA gets off his back, and neither of their lives are in danger anymore. So they reopen. Everyone comes in. Kira gets her one line of the episode. Rom comes in in a Bajoran uniform. I can't be the only person who noticed that immediately. I was like, oh, hey, that's interesting. Now, what I like about this is Rom is junior grade assistant engineer on the night shift. It's kind of like working at Walmart and being the overnight stalker, you know. It's, it's not a particularly high-rung position. And yet, and no shade intended by anyone who had that job, by the way, I myself have had that job in the past, so let's, don't think I'm trying to say that it's horrible. Work is work. But I point that out because, in context, it's still a very low-rung position for Naram to be in. And yet he is so proud of that, so pleased with himself to be in that position. Why wouldn't he be? He has the potential for advancement now. He has the potential to do something with his life now. As he himself says, almost immediately following, if I stayed at the bar, the only thing I have to look forward to is you dying and me taking over the bar. And then there's this hesitance, and he says, I don't want you to die. And Quark and Rom have something close to an actual moment with each other as, as they talk to each other. And, and Rom says, don't worry, you'll still see plenty of me just as a customer. And I'll still come by and I'll still fix your stuff for you. It'll be my job now. It's just I won't be under your thumb anymore. I will be able to accomplish things and you'll no longer have to deal with me. What I find interesting is when Odo found his people, René Bergenois said, I think this is a mistake. When uh, Nog was going to the Academy, oh God, I can never think of his name, and it always bothers me, because I actually really like him as an actor. The actor who plays Nog really thought that it was a mistake. And when Max Grodenchik, and this, when Rom decides to leave the bar and start becoming a Bajoran engineer, Max Grodenchik thought it was a mistake. I just point this out because it's funny to me that in all three of these cases, the actors felt, I don't know where you're going with this. And yet in all three cases, all three actors eventually decided that it was actually a good move. Aaron Eisenberg. I looked it up. <laughs> I looked it up on the side here. Aaron Eisenberg. Um, but I, I just point that out because that's something that's very Deep Space Nine-y. And in... I know that a lot of people debate whether D-Space 9 or TNG is better. I myself am un undecided on that. I've said for years that I think they're basically equal, just in different ways. You know, one's better than, at the other than others. But one of the key ways they're different is that DS9 was unafraid to change up the status quo when it came to its main cast of characters, to permanently change character arcs or to establish entirely new character arcs. And I think I like that about Deep Space Nine. I think it's one of the things I enjoy most about the, the, the game and how it continues to progress going forward. Either way, I hope you guys have enjoyed this episode. I'll see you next time.